Welcome to the Words of Grace podcast, where we discuss faith journeys, fellowship and stories from across the Diocese of Sheffield. Each week, we will feature guests from a broad range of backgrounds and traditions within the Church of England. Our mission is to delve deeper into matters of faith and to ask each guest what has drawn them to Christianity. I'm Ben Fern and I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Paul Sheridan. How are you doing? All right. Early start for us, Ben. Earliest podcast we've done, I think. But with good reason as well. With good reason, because we've got a great guest today, I think. Indeed. So, Very yeah. so well. I was happy to get up earlier and arrive at Church House at half past eight, which is early for me nowadays. But uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I think we've got a lot to get through, so I think we'll, we'll cut the chat and get straight to it. Is that okay? Absolutely. Go for it, yeah. Yeah, so um, our, today's guest is Father Grant Naylor, who's the vicar of St. Matthew's Church, Carver Street. Uh, he combines his role as a parish priest with also being a missionary across the diocese. A native of Liverpool, Father Naylor trained for the priesthood at St. Stephen's House, Oxford, before, before serving his curacy in, in County Durham. His interests include boxing, horse racing, Everton Football Club, let's get one that out there now, uh, history and taking time out in the Peak District for walks. Great to meet you this morning. Good morning. Is this normal? Are you an early riser, early starter? Yeah, I am. I think as I get old now, you know, I'm 35, so... Uh, oh, steady yeah, down, calm I down. Know, I know, so especially it seems when it's a day off, it seems that you just can't have a lie-in. You know, you sort of wake up at five o'clock or something like that, ready for the day. It's most annoying. Yeah, I'm, I'm not great in them i'm fine i'm not great in the evenings either so probably midday i peak <laughs> and that's about it i think well i was woken up by housemate this morning that was about five o'clock as well so oh. we're all sleep deprived today yep <laughs> so it's really great to have you here thanks Good for joining us um i think we should go straight in because you're pretty well known in the diocese i think um matthew st matthew's carver street well known as a church it sits in a particular end of, of, of thought, of a diocese thought uh, around Anglo-Catholicism. What does that mean to you? Where does that come from for you? Is that that's something obviously right at the core of your faith? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, the beauties of the Church of England is its, its diversity and variety. And from the time of the Reformation, you've always had people within the one church who have identified themselves as Catholics or as Protestants. And I often think that the Church of England maybe is one of the places where the Reformation divides might be healed. It's the place where all of the streams meet. Uh, for me, it was uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in a mixed household. Uh, what do you mean by a mixed household? So uh, my late father was an Orangeman. Okay. And uh, we've just celebrated the 12th of July recently. And my mother is a Roman Catholic. Uh, and uh, I went to... Uh, uh, Anglo-Catholic Church when I was a lad and what fascinated me uh, when I made that transition to that is that there was both a concern and a love for God in worship and then also a deep deep desire to serve the poor uh, so that was St. Luke's Southport and it was just a wonderful place and Father Shackleton God rest his soul was a wonderful example of those two things serving God in worship and serving the poor in practical action. So I think it's related, really, to the focus for Catholics on the doctrine of the Incarnation. That if God became flesh and shared in our life, then all of life needs to be redeemed. Uh, and uh, that means that the culture itself needs to be baptised. Uh, and that we can't have a living and lively faith unless we're interested in the needs of the poor. Is it a case as well, Grant, of sort of looking further back in history? You know, if we look at sort of a 
the history of the Church of England, perhaps it does, well, it would start with the Reformation in most cases, but is it looking further back to the traditions and heritage pre-Reformation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the Church of England was not invented at the Reformation. It it existed before then. And when we look back into the earliest days of Christianity here of Alban, uh, the first martyr, that was in Roman times when the church was present here. And if then we move through some of our favourite saints, maybe people like St. Cuthbert, everybody remembers the seals sitting on his feet. And uh, if you go to the northeast, you experience something of the northern saints. Uh, that there was a church here for a very, very long time. And so the for an Anglo-Catholic, we seek really to remind the Church of England that she's not just an English church, but that she rightly takes her place between the great churches of East and West, so both the Latin Church in Rome, but also the Eastern churches uh, of uh, the Greek and Russian Orthodox and the Syrians and the Ethiopian Copts and, you know, uh, the Ethiopian Church and the Coptic Church, and there's a great beauty to that, and actually all of that seems to come to meet where I am at the moment at Carver Street because we have people from all sorts of backgrounds, 25 nationalities that meet to worship God on a Sunday morning, uh, which I just find blows my mind at times, actually. It's a beautiful thing. And it's had a blessing recently, hasn't it? We've covered this as a diocese, the um, the increase in congregation by a quarter. Is that right? Yes. So that was uh, last year and actually this year by a further 10%. Um, so I, you know, I thank God for that growth really that we've, that we've had over, over the last years. Um, and I can't attribute that to any one particular thing except for, you know, God and our people. And I'm very blessed by a good team at St. Matthew's, uh, who are deeply, deeply committed to the growth of the church. And I spoke with your church wardens recently for this story and they mentioned a lot of that new presence of people is from younger people and they said that that sort of anglo-catholic tradition and that sort of as you mentioned uh, multinational as- aspect to it has been part of the attraction yeah i think that that is the case and so we've often found in a lot of younger people people that want to engage in a really deep tradition and uh, i think there's something about it as well about the use of imagery you know we now live in a generation which is hyper with hyper literacy and so people now use images to communicate again you know see the way that people use instagram and so i think that anglo-catholicism does have something to offer the wider church at this present time with people that want to engage with the visual again uh, if you go to an anglo-catholic church you will be assaulted by the uh, array of things on uh, for your senses whether that's uh, smell through incense or through uh, visual signs around the church and so i think that that does have a connection with younger people and i think also the international flavor that a catholic tradition gives to the church uh, also has a deep impression on them it's been interesting sort of from a comms perspective to go out to different churches and see different traditions um i've said before as my grandma would say i'm from lower down the candle yeah. methodist background yeah. so when i first went to carver street obviously it was very different to what i'm used to but still fascinating all the same that imagery um but one thing you said to me before when i one of the first times I spoke to you is that despite those different traditions say methodism um to anglo-catholicism the the sacramental aspect there's a lot of crossover there there is and actually there's a common root with methodism and anglo-catholicism 
because uh, when there was a revival in the sort of Catholic wing of the church, it did have common roots, actually, with Methodism. So it was about groups of people being quite serious, uh, holy clubs starting up in places, people meeting to read the scriptures afresh, people that were interested to getting back to a primitive form of of Christianity, so early Christianity. So that's why like, actually evangelical forms and Anglo-Catholic forms do have a common root and came from the same place. And we see that in the life of some of the early great Tractarians like Newman, uh, who's now, of course, St. John Henry Newman. The other thing that I would say about Methodism and Anglo-Catholicism is that they both, as parts of the church, had a deep concern for the poor. And actually, in many ways, they're both religions of the heart. So they also elicit an emotional response from people. You know, who is this man, Jesus Christ? You know, because he is a man, we can have a relationship with him. And uh, it's interesting that when you look at the hymnody of Anglo-Catholicism and Methodism, there are many, many common roots. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm from a non-conformist background as well. And uh, I find that really interesting that you, you, you say that because that wouldn't probably be from quite strong non-conformist backgrounds. That wouldn't be the impression coming that way. So I, th- I find that a really interesting, gentle approach to the relationship. That's fantastic. So really growing up then, if you came from... You actually said an orange man, so yeah. that would be a particular yes. route. <laughs> it wasn't just he was a Protestant, no. he was an orange yeah, man. Yeah, he was. And your, and your mum was a, a Catholic. Yeah, she is. She's still practising, yeah. What was that like? So Liverpool, the streets of Liverpool, you know, um, I'm old enough to remember, obviously, the troubles, but, you know, that, that sort of sectarianism has drifted across into places like Liverpool as well and, and some of our northern cities, you know, up in Scotland. What was that like for you? Did that really impact you or was it something that, that's mum and dad, that's what it is? Yeah, so it, it, it was actually something which was present, so something that I was aware of from a very early age. So I would say that I was brought up in a household that was at once both ecumenical and sectarian at the same time. <laughs> Um, and uh, it was always interesting around the 12th of July when my father's friends would come from Scotland for the parades. So so would your dad, sorry to interrupt, would your dad take part in the parades? Oh, yes, sash, bowler hat, the whole all lot. the rest, yeah, yeah. And um, the thing is, they, I, I'm younger than my brothers, there's a big gap. I think I was the mistake. There was four boys, then 14 years, and then me. Uh, but or a blessing. Well, yeah, that's what my mum always says. Um, but... They married in 1968, me mum and dad. And when they married at that point in Liverpool, A, the troubles were starting up in Ireland, and B, it was still a very, very sectarian and divided city. And so neither of the heads of the family would go. They had to marry at a side altar in a Roman Catholic church. You know, it was just not the done thing. But then it was, in essence, me mum and dad's generation that changed that. And they married for love. And that made a huge difference in breaking down those barriers. And then later on, uh, where the sort of hearts had led in terms of couples starting to intermarry, there were, of course, those two great uh, bishops in Liverpool. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In uh, Archbishop Warlock, the Roman Catholic Archbishop, and David Shepherd, great cricketer, of course. Of course, absolutely. Uh, international, heroes, yeah. England international, uh, who was the, bis- the Anglican Bishop of Liverpool. And the two of them just worked together so well and broke down a lot of the divides. Two cathedrals, of course, in Liverpool connected by Hope Street, which I love. Uh, And so Liverpool is a tremendously ecumenical city now. Has that sort of influenced your own priesthood then, Grant, that that ecumenical approach, given 
that can heal those divides you've talked about? Yeah, I think it has in a number of ways. I think that the church, to have a common witness, has to stand together and stand united. And actually, the divisions within the church are a great wound, I believe, against the body of Christ. And I just do not think that we should be content with those divisions between Christians as we see them at the moment. And so, yet I do think that it has influenced that profoundly because I do think it's one of the the biggest stumbling blocks for non-Christians. At the same time, I also feel that what's important in ecumenical dialogue is not to say that there aren't any differences. So my mum and dad were very, very clear about where they stood on things theologically. And that was important to have that honesty and clarity. Uh, and I think actually sometimes ecumenical debate these days doesn't go very deep. And so what happens is people say, oh, we're all the same. And then all of a sudden divisions arise later, which are really problematic. So it's much better to be clear up front. Yeah, I came from a, a small town in England and um, the mo- some of the most influential moments in my 20s and 30s were when we had churches together that met as churches together. And in a small town, quite often, you know, people are married across, you know, friends that yeah. married different churches. You meet at youth meetings and all that sort of stuff. But I think one of the most profound moments was when actually, rather than just meeting on a Tuesday night at church together, we had a 10.30 service yes. where everybody met in the same room. Yeah. And that was important for the leadership as much as the churches because they actually had to lay down my church at 10.30 yes. and meet together and have a group of uh, a congregation that all knew each other and a group of ministers from lots of different trends all stood together at sort of 10.30 on a Sunday morning was very well, a lot of us were in tears on that day because it was very profound that actually yes. we are actually all together because mm. across the world we're all meeting at sort of 10:30 yeah. but to do it in one room was was very influential for me i think that is profound and i i think the other times when i've seen ecumenism being really strong is actually in areas of persecution so if one goes to see the church say in bethlehem where christians have now become a minority from being a majority 100 years ago you will not find the divisions of Christianity being so acute because people realize that they have to be as one and actually they find their common identity in their baptism. You mentioned Bethlehem there, Grant. You were very convincing sometime last year on the Walsingham Pilgrimage, which I will be attending with you uh, in November, which I'm really looking forward to. Yes, yeah, so we're off to the Holy Land, aren't we, in November? I'm looking forward to that. Just give us a quick taste of the itinerary because this is what painted the picture so well to me when you were sort of telling me what was going to take place yeah so we'll be doing quite a few things over there we'll be for the for the first few days we'll be up in the peace of galilee uh next to the uh, sea of galilee which is actually just like a big lake really uh and we'll be traveling around the places where jesus actually ministered and uh it's a beautiful beautiful place i mean you can stand on the shore and see where jesus restored peter to fellowship uh, just it, it is just so incredibly moving. You know, you will be able to see uh, Peter's house uh, where he cured Peter's mother-in-law. You will be able to go to Cana to see where Jesus and his mum and his mates went to a wedding party in a wedding hall and turned quite a lot of water into an awful lot of wine. Um, so it is it is beautiful to see those places. And then we'll be travelling down to uh the great sites of the mystery of our faith, of course, so to go to Jerusalem to see where Jesus was crucified, where he arose, uh, to see Bethlehem, where he was born, 
It is a wonderful place, but more important than all of that is actually to go to the Holy Land and meet some of the living stones of the Christians who are still there today. I, I really can't wait. I think it's it's going to be a trip. It's a trip I've wanted to make sort of for a long time. But it links to what you were saying about when we go meet with other Christians, go as Christians, we're not going to be sort of saying, oh, I'm from this denomination, that denomination. It's very much an ecumenical, we're all Absolutely. one sort of approach. Yeah. So when you were growing up, um, you had this double upbringing. So Sunday morning, how did that pan out? Well, that was interesting, actually, because Sunday morning, I'd gone to uh, Church of England Primary School and uh, my local parish church, St. Oswald's Netherton. I just started taking myself off there, actually, as a young lad. We were all baptised Church of England. I think that was the middle way, the VMA. Oh, what, you and your brothers? All, yeah. 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 And, uh, and so I had a fantastic church school, actually, which is still a wonderful church school, really deeply Christian. Loads of teachers who would give extra of their time in order to run good news clubs and Bible studies. Uh, and uh, from there we had very, very good relations with the local uh, vicar, uh, who was the Reverend Andrew Edwards, and the curate, Reverend Chris Spittle, and they were just wonderful uh, guys, and uh, I just learned the faith through there. Part of a big confirmation group there. There were about uh, 25 of us uh, who were young, who were all confirmed together, and it was a really, really wonderful place. And that town actually was very ecumenical. There was a strong Churches Together movement, so I was exposed to that as a young lad as well. And then, you said uh, senior school, you went to a Catholic school, did you? Or? Yes, I did. So I went to, um, there's there's a convent school in McGull called Maricourt, and uh, the sisters were still there and still active then. And that was a wonderful place to go to as well. I, I ended up as head boy at the school, and I always remember one of the nuns saying to me, you're our first Protestant head boy, but you're the most Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> so they they they, 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 they were great. They were love the impression. They, we yeah. love an accent. We love an accent. <laughs> Been practicing that in the minute all morning. Yeah, no, well, yeah. Ben will start doing Muppet impressions in a minute. So keep going. Don't stop. Don't stop now. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a great place to go. Actually, um, wonderful school because. At the heart of the school was a convent where they had mass every day and the sisters were praying. And the sisters over the years had gone from doing all of the teaching to doing some of the teaching and there was still a, the headmistress was a sister there. It had all of the facilities. It was a state school, but it had all of the facilities of a really sort of posh private school. Because what the nuns did is they received payment and salaries and pensions, but they lived off just one. So the rest of the money was invested in the school. And I remember one day uh, there was a parent teacher association meeting because the the sisters had built a new dance drama block with a sprung floor, and uh, one of the parents said, "This is a terribly lavish expense, isn't it?" And all the rest. And one of the sisters, with a twinkle in her eye, got up and said, "I believe in the best for our girls and boys here." She said, "I remember having a beautiful night before I entered the convent with an American GI." on this famous dance floor in Liverpool and she said she wanted the same for her girls and boys there wasn't there wasn't a dry eye in the house <laughs> so saying that did you feel at that point as a as a young boy you're the best catholic amongst us sort of did you feel that there was a pull on you to ministry at that yeah, point yeah i'd say that i first felt a call when i was about 11 or 12 to the priesthood and it was actually here in the curate in my parish church 
talk about his journey uh, toward nation. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, and I, I couldn't shake it off. And um, I remember going to see the DDO in Liverpool when I was 15. And that's the Dawson director of Ordnance who sort of helped you through the process. And he was so sweet with me because I think, you know, I'd probably say, say, well, you can't do anything about it at the moment, laddie. And all that he said to me, he said, well, keep reading your Bible. He said, there's a book for you to read. Come and see me in a year. When you get the chance, uh, learn how to drive and make sure you go to university and don't study theology, he said to me, which is what I did. <laughs> and um, and I couldn't shake it off. And when I went up to university, I thought, well, I'll wait till I'm about 30 or something to become a priest. When I went up to university, four of the first guys that I met were also testing a vocation. I thought, oh, yeah, I can't escape God. So um, so you didn't go to any careers lessons at school then when they did the careers, but you walked into the careers teacher and said, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I did think about other things, but I always knew in my heart that I wanted to be a priest. And That's extraordinary. you were yeah. one of the youngest, is that right? Yes, I was. Yeah, I was ordained when I was 23, which is the canonical age in 2011. Uh, and... Um, yeah, that was a great time because I went to serve my title up in the northeast, which I really, really enjoyed. It was a fascinating area and very, very good people, very honest people, uh, and I uh, had a great time up there. Brilliant, and it's it's one of those things I saw the ordinations recently that say so you were ordained uh, at a very young age, as a lot are, but you do see a broad range of ages, don't you, of people coming forward Absolutely. to be ordained? Yeah, and I think that that's a good thing. Actually, I think. It's ex it's it's a really excellent thing that people can be ordained later because they'll bring different experiences, different life experiences. But then I also think that we always need people that are ordained very young because there's certain experiences that one gets as a priest that you can't get anywhere else. And so just being immersed in the life of a priest for the whole of your life and say doing a stint of, you know, 40, 50, 60 years is a, is a really, really important thing for the church. Yeah, I remember uh, one of my old Baptist ministers telling me that uh, he'd, um, he'd gone to Bible college at, at 21 and had been a minister all his life, became an area superintendent and so on and so forth. And uh, he said there's a, there's a modern push to have life experience before you become a minister. And he said, and that's great for some people, but actually what that means is we have very short ministry spells. But actually, if he, he said his cohort, who were all young in those days, he's, um, he's in his late 80s now, that depth of experience, of spiritual growth, of seeing so much happening, even as we, he came and stuff, as stuff was happening in our church at that time, I went to see him about it, and he said, yeah, I remember in 1953. You know, and it was that depth of experience. So it's a, a balancing act, isn't it? And, and I think one of the things that made me realise this is, you know, growing up in Liverpool, uh, usually you are streetwise. <laughs> but seeing the different experiences that I had within three weeks of being a 23-year-old deacon and what my mates at 23 had had, I mean, in one day, I could uh, be from doing a funeral of of a baby maybe in the morning to doing a visit in a crack den to then going and having tea with the lord mayor i mean that you just it's unbelievable the things that you see as a priest uh the houses and situations that you walk into you see all of life i don't think you see that anywhere else to be honest and you said quite early on about the depth of um relation to the poor 
is at the core of of of, of faith mm. and you've just drifted back into that again i i sense that that's a, a real key to, to you mm. that the relationship that the gospel is a gospel for not j- obviously for everybody mm. but there's something central around the poor the widow the needy yeah. does that impact you carver street's a particular spot how does that play into that yeah, so I, I mean, I think that it should play into everyone's ministry, to be honest, because I think it's clear in the gospel. Jesus, you know, tells us to make genuine friends uh, with the poor. So in our particular context, we're in the top 10% of deprivation. So people think, oh, you know, the city center, glitzy ministry and all the rest. It's still extremely poor. There's a lot of poverty around. And what we've sought to be is, A, to be a house which is open to everyone. And so everybody's welcome at mass and you'll see people of all sorts of demographics at carver street but then also that we wish to serve the practical needs of the poor and one of our main outworkings of that is we have a parish nursing project so we have nurses that go out and work with people who are vulnerable um and that's had a big impact actually over the last three years uh they've got a team of volunteers i mean we've just put some stats up for their hours for the first part of the year and it's just unbelievable really what they do um, we're looking to employ a mental health nurse to complement that team at the moment, but that project has just grown. And it really moved me that during the height of the pandemic that Michaela, our lead nurse, was going to see someone who did have big issues with drugs uh, and was someone who many people had just left because, of course, he didn't really want to look after himself. And literally during that time, literally she was washing his feet, bandaging his feet, cleaning his flat for him. And that, to me, speaks of the love that only God can give us. Yeah, yeah. There's something fundamental in the gospel in that, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, Michaela, Marjorie, and all the team do a fantastic job. Um, there've been testimonies from people that they've helped as well who've been there with Michaela mm. and yeah. with the team, yeah. just testifying to what difference it's made to their lives. And they've mm. got a, a stand in the market on the moor, haven't they, as well? They have, yeah. So you can anybody can go uh, and get their blood pressure taken uh, or the slightly nastier operation of being weighed. Uh, <laughs> I'm always being challenged in Lent to the, the weight loss challenge, which I think they've devised just for priests, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's, my wife's a street pastor, fantastic, so I yeah. do pop in on a yeah. Sunday night, drop her off and... Uh, I, I make sure because she opens the door sometimes I go in and, and check around and, and I just think I think on one Saturday night there were people pouring out on Saturday night as we were arriving at 10 o'clock yes. and, and it was the mayhem of West Street and Division Street street pastors going in and the people pouring out of that church was just was just a fantastic picture yeah. I think it was just it will stay with me without a doubt street pastors do great work they do great work yes mm. yeah yeah I'm not so keen when she comes in at four o'clock in the morning, freezing cold, but anyway, that's a different thing. Grant, it's worth flagging and promoting your podcast as yes. well. Uh, okay. Yes, So that. yeah, well, I mean, Ian, who's our development worker, is so techie and visionary and always doing the next thing. So he started putting the sermons up there on our podcast. Uh, but now uh, I just have a 15-minute Coffee with Father, which is just a faith-sharing podcast where I have a coffee with someone after Mass we just shared a little bit of their story. One of the things that I'm always blessed by and what has actually affirmed me in my faith is looking out over a sea of faces on a Sunday morning and actually over time getting to know all of those individual stories. You know, we might go to church and see all of those people there, 
but do we know what motivates them to be there? And I always find that a, a faith-confirming exercise. And I'd encourage people to just ask the person next to you, why are they there? What's brought them there? What's their life journey? Often our conversations in church are so superficial, but let's go deeper because there's something to learn from each each and every one of us. Do you have any advice for something like that on, say someone's come to church for the first time, how to sort of balance that welcome? I saw an interesting sort of thread on Twitter recently of... Um, it was a negative one in terms of what are some when you've gone to visit a church, what are some of your worst experiences? And it's been one extreme or the other. It's been either they've been over the top with the welcome or they've just been totally distant and not acknowledged them. Is there a sweet spot or a good approach to take for someone who you've seen for the first time? I think there is. So I think uh, one of my things, which is probably counterintuitive to what most people might think, I actually really like silent churches before mass. Uh, something that I insist on on Carver Street. Because if you walk into a church and everyone's talking to someone, you're automatically excluded if you're on your own. And so we actually don't have the massive big bear hug welcome at the door. We have a good morning welcome. Everything that you need is in this sheet. Members of the congregation are primed to sit near to someone who's new. And there's a sense that there's something that massive that's going to happen when you walk into Carver Street on a Sunday morning because people are just silently praying the prayers. And that means that everybody's equal there. Then after Mass, we seek to welcome people. But what we try to do is to give our details to someone rather than try and take their details. So I never ask anybody for the details or to meet up for a coffee until I've seen them two or three times. But what I do want to give everybody who's new is to say, really nice to meet you. Hope that you've received a warm welcome today. Here's my details if you ever fancy a coffee or a pint. And... Uh, and, and do feel free to get in touch so that there's an availability open to people, but that it's very much then on their terms if they want to make contact. I think you've got to give people that freedom. So balancing the warm welcome, uh, the sense that everybody's the same, that they're here for a serious thing, and then also being available to people afterwards. I think that's really important, isn't it? Because we react differently, don't we? When we go into church, some people might want to be more sort of distant not want to be disturbed too much but mm. i think more than anything people want some sort of reference point or mm. signpost for more information on how to get in touch so i think that is a sort of important aspect of that yeah yeah i think when we came to sheffield we'd been in churches a long time but we came to a whole new city and it was interesting going we did a bit of a circuit really of of, of different faiths not different faiths different backgrounds and um we actually stayed at the one where we were we were spoken to the most and Actually, when we went back the second week, uh, a number of people came up, remembered our name and said, "Is it, and that great. was a real key for us. We've been mm. to some yeah. quite big hitters in the diocese and hadn't, had had a welcome that was formulaic. Yeah. And having yeah. been yeah. in church a long time, I know the formulaic. Yeah. But yeah. the one we ended up and we've stayed at and there's you know, the things around it that it doesn't know what suit us. I've never been to Church of England before. But we had a welcome that meant something and people remembered That's our name great. and picked up a conversation uh, and it was That's really really yeah. important to us at, at coming into a new city yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really so. good just but i think before we come to the quick fire questions just another sort of quick explainer if that's okay uh, a big part of anglo-catholicism in the diocese is the hickleton chapter could you give just a quick overview of what what it means and what it entails who's a part of it 
Yeah, so, I mean, that's just sort of a collection of, of incumbents who meet together for support uh, and banter. And, um, you know, I think one of the important things is that all of us uh, need to be uh, accountable to someone else at times uh, and have a place where we can share both joys and sorrows. Uh, so one of the things that I've found in my ministry is that being able to share joys and sorrows is is very, very important in ministry, uh, a place where you can be honest about stuff um, is a very, very important thing and accountability uh, to others. And also sometimes just to be able to have a laugh with people is is a great tonic for the soul. Yeah, so we do um, drift off now into other areas. So um, okay, cool. horse racing and boxing, yes. two of the things I was brought up with, my, my granddad was a big horse racing fan used to take us to the races and um he used to give us a little bit of money take us along the the bookies or the tote or whatever and allow us to put a bid on the horses and i was disappointed in because i'd i'd pick the pretty gray one yeah yeah, and, and yeah. obviously he was a great form man yeah. uh, and then he'd he'd roll his eyes let me sit on the bench then he'd go and lay all the bets off to yes. make sure that he covered <laughs> and we knew how we'd done in the day was depending on where we went that night for a meal Very if clever. we ended yeah, the three that's... salmons in usk it was he'd had a good day if it was a bag of chips on the way home he hadn't had such a great day did you go to the races as a, as a kid or was that yeah, something that later so, so i grew up in the shadow of aintree uh so so went to the races from a from a very young age and uh, I've just I've just always loved the races and enjoyed seeing the horses and whatnot and to see the form of the jockeys. I think it's just a, a, a great day out. And um, yeah, growing up around Aintree, the um, the Grand National meet literally took over all of the streets around you, so you you couldn't avoid it. Boxing. Boxing, my father was a boxing coach, was all he? of my brothers have boxed, I'm the only one without a broken nose, so again it was just in the air. Uh, my brother actually uh, could have had a professional career, one of my brothers who uh, was a very keen boxer, he won the schoolboys two years on the run, and it was a toss up between whether he went pro or whether he went into the Royal Marines. He went into the Royal Marines and then found that most of his Royal Marine career was boxing. Because once yeah. they found out he was a boxer, that was it. Yeah. Greatest boxer of all time. Ooh. Uh, or boxer that I like the best. Go on then. I, I love like Sugar Ray Robinson yeah. and, 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 and that sort of era of boxing in America. Um, just because of the style. You know, a good boxer, my father always said, should be a ballerina. First wow, and foremost, should be yeah. good on his toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, I love. We're just dropping the boxing hand, but uh, I, I love that sort of lightweight middleweight. You know, yeah. you know, the Barry McGuigan years was when I was sat, McGuigan. At, sat at the telly with my dad watching yeah. that. Was just like boxing was prime time TV in those days on, on BBC. And and Barry McGuigan, of course, got a gr- an amazing sort of faith story, the Northern Irish connections yes. and everything. Yeah. Uh, but no, to to see them on the toes is an amazing thing, and. It's sad, really, that sometimes people think that boxing is just about knocking seven bells out of the other person. It's it's a sport, and it's based on points. And good boxing is based on those things. I'm not into all of these. It's no offence to any of our listeners, but MMA, cage, no, this, that, and the no. other. I think that's brutal, but I find boxing to be a, a, a very, very beautiful sport. Football as well. Everton yeah. fan. Often in Liverpool, there are split loyalties in families. Is that the case in yours? No, not in Liverpool, no. 
everybody in Liverpool supports Everton. It's only foreigners that support Liverpool. Well, no, 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 no. But did you find there was a, a divide? Because I sort of grew up thinking there was a religious divide, Liverpool-Everton. Was no, that true? that is not true. It people, wasn't. It wasn't. No. It wasn't the the blue. There wasn't the same no, Catholic. It's 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 strange actually because sometimes people have said that to me, and I think that those things in Northern Ireland and Scotland are read onto Liverpool, but it's not the case. So both um, my mum and dad, Everton supporters, and um, yeah, no, that the, there isn't a divide on that. And actually, the the rivalry in Liverpool is a friendly rivalry. Very much. Yeah, yes. you know, you could go to the match with the opposite side. A bit different in Sheffield. <laughs> Just a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of towns, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, we've all, I remember the friendly cup finals and all that stuff. They're not, not in a great state at the moment, though, are they, your Blues? Well, um, we'll have to see what this season does. But I am, you know, worn down on my knees by the amount of prayers that I was saying last season. <laughs> We both thought they were going down, I must say. I must put a that out there. A year of little thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a non-conformist, you know, just rocking up. But the thing that I do hold on to is that, you know, Everton, of course, are the most successful football team in, in, in English football. Yeah, we'll come back to that on another podcast. I, think. We, I, don't, we, I, well, I, don't, I don't know where the terms the, have got. I've, I've agreed we, with lots of what you we, said today we, so far. We might well. not have much in the trophy cabinet, but... If you look at what team has been in top flight football way longer than any other yeah, team, that's, one, it is that's one metric that we could use. I think that's anyway. an important one for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clinging on to it. <laughs> I think it's interesting the original tenants of Anfield were Everton as well. That is interesting. So, this will now be uh, the third stadium that we have built in Liverpool because we're just building the Bramley Moor Dock at the moment. Uh, so, we built at Anfield first, uh, then Goodson and uh, now Bramley Moor, but I am just relieved that we've stayed up because we would have had the best ground in the championship and yeah. probably gone bankrupt. Yeah, it would have been would have been difficult, wouldn't it? Yeah. So we do a few quick-fire questions towards the end of our time on Words of Grace. So um, what books are you reading at the moment? What's on the bedside table? Uh, I'm actually reading Nigel Bigger's book on colonialism, a bit controversial. Uh, he is an Oxford academic uh, who I knew us was there and a priest. And he's not condoning colonialism by any means but he is writing a reappraisal of basically British involvement in it and it is interesting uh, to engage with some of those controversial and live issues in our public debate at the moment so that is interesting to read Oh, I'll look into that, yeah that would be interesting um, Music, has that played a, a large part in your... Absolutely, yeah, I've got, I've got really diverse sort of tastes in music though Go on. Favourite band. Is there a favourite band or is there... Favourite band... I... I like Jamiroquai. Wow. I didn't know we were going there. No, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> but I do have really diverse tastes in music. I think growing up in a household that spans the generations. And we were... We did have music in the family as well. I thought you were going to some, some uh, Irish folk band that no one had ever heard of that JK came out. So there were... I do like Irish folk music. A big shout out for the Grapes in Sheffield on a Monday night. There's a really good music night where everybody has to sing, even if you can't. It goes around the room. That's very scary for someone who can't yeah, sing like yeah, me. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you had to wear, or if you were asked to wear a Liverpool shirt during a sermon, would you do it? No. Is it even as a dare? It would be outrageous to blaspheme God by word and such <laughs> rubbish. <laughs> I'll have to ask the same question of Eljo when she comes on because she's a Liverpool fan, but in reverse. Yeah, 
I think I think it runs deep here, doesn't it? I think that wasn't there was no blink of the eye there when he said that. So yeah, unhesitating, unhesitating. Though. Yeah. Another quick question. It's a light-hearted one, but sort of links to what we're talking about. Have you seen Derry Girls? Yes, I have seen Derry Girls. It was just like my school days. <laughs> <laughs> I love Derry Girls. It's very. I like the one where the nun dies in the class. And one of the girls gets blamed for, for killing a nun, which, as everybody knows, is like you're in purgatory for about a thousand years for killing a nun. Sister Michael's the best character in that as well. She, she's, she's very, very good, very droll. That's been great. It's been a really, really... It's flown by. It's 45 minutes, and that's flown by. It's so good to, to chat with you, and thanks for your openness and honesty and, and, and the diversity that you've brought to this. It's been a really, really great time. Um, and uh, I think... Uh, I didn't know you were going on that trip. I did notice it on the poster outside Carver Street to St. Matthew's the other day, and I thought, oh, that looks an interesting trip. So I'm really, we'll have to catch up on that afterwards, I think. I'll spam you with plenty of photos. Great, don't worry. that's brilliant. So, Father Grant Naylor, it's been great to speak to you. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you both so much. See you next time.